what we're studying here, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what it's all about. That's the only thing that really matters in the world, the message of the gospel. So, as we start to look at Jesus' ministry growing and growing and growing, we have to remember that we are the disciples also. We're in the boat with him. We're in the, in the quiet mountainside with him. We are one of the true disciples of Jesus Christ. So when he's dealing with his, the 12, um, he's, he's, these are messages for us too. Now, John is one of the four gospel writers. This miracle that we're going to look at today is one, the only besides the resurrection, that all the gospel writers write about. So we're going to be looking a little bit at at Mark and, and Matthew and Luke also to give us a better understanding to round it out. But John leaves out a lot of stuff on purpose, especially when it comes to the details of the miracles and the signs. It's almost like he kind of rushes through the miracles to get to the, the, the meat of the matter, which is what Jesus is saying, his words and what he's saying. And I know this was a real thick part in here. There's a lot of red letters that we're going to be looking at today. Um, but it, it's building the, the, the case, the scene of the miracles are going to be building the foundation for the words that he's going to be talking about. And remember the miracles, his signs reveal his divine power. He does those so they can see that he is, he's God. He's from God. He is God. But it's his words that correctly define who he is. Okay, we have the signs that he does, that evidence that he is from God. He's divine. He is God. But it's the words that he uses to explain who he is. But signs and wonders alone are not enough for salvation. Romans ten seventeen tells us, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It's his words that we're going to be really emphasizing today. The ultimate miracle that he accomplished was his resurrection. And remember, miracles are there to satisfy a human need. So this ultimate miracle that he accomplished of his resurrection was satisfying man's biggest need, isn't it? So let's go ahead and take a look at chapter 6. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And if you have a map on the back of your book, it's kind of interesting to be able to kind of watch where he's going. And right now, the sea, you know, if this is the Sea of um, Galilee, he's going to be kind of going up over here at this corner of, of the, um, the, the sea on the top. It's more mountainous there. Across the little corner of it, there's Capernaum where they're going to end up. So after this, after what? There is a significant amount of time between verse, chapters 5 and, verse, and chapter 6. What, after this, what were these things that they were after? Pretty much after finishing an exhausting ministry. Six months, maybe a year had gone by since we closed out in chapter 5. Mark 6 says, Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. So they went out 
and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil, many who were sick and healed. So during this, before we get to chapter 6, he has sent out the disciples. And they had an exhausted ministry and a powerful ministry that they did. Matthew 11.1 says that even Jesus, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples to go out two by two, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So he also was teaching and preaching. Also during this time, we find out from Matthew 14.13, the news had come to Jesus and the disciples that John the Baptist had been executed by Herod. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. That's our connecting verse right there. He hears the news about John the Baptist. So the disciples and him, they, they, it's just time to regroup. And so this is when we open up with chapter 6. But does he have a secluded place to rest? Mm. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So this is pretty much why they're hanging out with him. Free meals, entertainment, you know, it's a, it's a, this is the talk of the town. And it was a large crowd, a large crowd that followed him and, and, and just, just were on the heels of wherever he went. Add to that now, chapter, verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. They're resting. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and that was down lower in Jerusalem, north of where they, south of where they were. So they had a bunch of pilgrims coming from all over the place now to celebrate the Passover. So we also have another large crowd of people that add on to the crowd that already followed him there. In verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. We have a massive amount of people here, a massive amount of people, okay? Thousands, 15 to 20,000 people, if you take the 5,000 men and put families to them. There was a lot of people. There weren't cars or anything. It was people, families following him there. So they did not find a peaceful seclusion. crowd of thrill seekers were gathered around him. In verse 2, it says the crowd was not motivated by faith at this point. I mean, some maybe were, but the mass majority, they were interested in repentance. It was not a genuine love for him. It was just, this is like the, <laughs> this was huge. He was a huge phenomenon at the time. You know, all the things, all the miracles that he'd done, all the preaching that he had done and the disciples had done and stuff, and now they are all accumulating over there. They followed him to this place. They weren't quite understanding that the significance of his miracles were to prove his deity, that he was the son of God, that he was sent from heaven. But he sees the crowd, he's lifting up his eyes, he sees the crowd, and he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus looks out at the massive crowd, tired, 
Um, but, but here he was. His compassion reaches out to them. He knows what's in men's hearts. He knows that many of them are superficially following him. But he is he's God, the Son of God, with great compassion. We pick up from Matthew 14 at this point in, in John's story that he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. And, in, and Mark 6.34 says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And Luke 9.11 tells us about this particular time. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So this massive crowd of 15,000 to 20,000 people, he's teaching them and he's, he's instructing them and he's healing their sick and he had compassion on that. So he continues to give out, give out, give out. Most important, the stage is being set for his biggest teaching on that he is the bread of life. So when he turns to his disciples and he asks them, we got to feed these people. They're hungry. It says that it's a test. He said in verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. But he turns to him and asks Philip, you know, where are we going to buy bread that these people may eat? Why was this a test? Why did he, why was there a need to test Philip and those who were standing around? First of all, his question is kind of, you know, he wasn't really looking to Philip for an answer. Jesus knew what he was going to do. It says it right there. But what it did was it took what was going on and focused on a problem. There's a problem, and yet this is an impossible problem to meet. How many times in our life are we up against impossible things? There's just no way. There's no way we're going to see around this. There's no way God's going to come through. It's just this is, this, you know, why, why, did, why did we get here, God? What are you going to do now? I mean, what's going to happen here? There's no, nothing I can do to fix this. And so Jesus is setting it up here that he's saying that, look, there was no way in the world that they were going to come up with enough food. Philip, right away, though, this is a test for him, um, and he's starting to think. The test that Jesus is putting out there is when you're looking at an impossible situation, are you still going to have faith in God to, to, to fix it, to deal with it? James 1, 2 to 4 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a trial. This is an impossible situation. Why is it there? To test our faith. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice. And you're supposed to have a, be happy about these things too, you know. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may more precious than gold that perishes through its te- though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a test to strengthen their faith, to have their faith grow. So how does Philip respond? He responds by saying 200 denarii would not even be enough bread to, to, to feed them. In other words, eight months of someone working, there's no way in the world you're going to be able to feed these people. No way. 
And, and where would we get this money? And where would we go to, to buy this food? You know, they're out in the middle of nowhere pretty much. And, and how long would it take? So the calculator's going in Peter's head. He's thinking about the problem. He's not thinking about the Savior who he's already witnessed miraculous things, healings and stuff, the, the wine at the wedding, all these things. But he wasn't pulling that stuff in. How many times do we forget how God's taken care of us in the past? So that was his answer. Um, Andrew then, we find out from Mark 6, 38, that Jesus was commanding them all to go out and find food. Go out and find all the food, collect all the food from the people, okay? And so because we know that from Mark, we have Andrew's answer that says, you know, well, here's, you know, I found a little boy with a lunch, and here it is, but he's skeptical. <laughs> What's this going to do? You know, what are we going to do with this? No one responded by affirming the power of Jesus to provide. No one did. But do you remember, remember Jesus' mother at the wedding? What did she tell them to do? Just do whatever he says to do, right? That was mom. Do whatever he says to do. We're not getting this response from the disciples. So Jesus is going to miraculously provide for a physical need. Remember, divine intervention to provide for a physical need. Their faith test, they didn't do too well on that. They maybe got a D or something. But their test of obedience, they probably got an A or maybe an A+. Because he tells them to have the people sit down. There was much grass in this place, so they all sat down, about 5,000 in number. Why did it say the grass was there? Well, Passover, it was spring, the grass was there. This is just another key detail for the witness of John. So they're sitting down, and this was a lot of work to put that many people into groups of 50. That was a lot of work, but they're obedient. They're not asking why. They're not doubting. They're not talking behind his back. They pass the test of obedience, and they go out, and they put these fifteen to 20,000 hungry people into groups. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. He gives thanks, and he passes out dinner, enough that people had their fill and there were leftovers. Um, he does this without a lot of fanfare. He didn't go through this long, exorbitant prayer or, you know, whatever. It's just he just took it, he gave thanks, and he started to pass it out. Now, now we're going to, it's always a, a wonder, like, oh, well, how did he do that? Did all of a sudden there's a pile of bread there or whatever? If we look at Mark six forty one. And again, if we go to a different translation, the New American Standard, and you just weigh this in, these are translations, it says this, And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples again and again to set before them, and he divided the two fish among them also. He continued, the New American Standard Version says that he continued to break 
the bread and put it into baskets and break some more bread and put it into baskets and break some more bread and put it into baskets until this mass amount of people were filled and there was leftovers. Jesus continually worked through all this and the people watched this full baskets full of food going out to feed the people, the masses of people on this hillside continuing to break and to give. These people witnessed a true creative miracle. There's no way in the world there was a bread truck back there that he was getting this stuff from, was there? It was coming from his own hands that he was producing this, this food for these people. And they saw it. Um, wow, you just wonder what the bread tasted like, you know? It was probably just really good stuff. So... 14, and when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, oh, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So yeah, they correctly understood and saw what he was doing through this miracle that he was divine, that he was the Messiah. They got that part. He was satisfying a physical need. And he would, they were thinking, this is great. We'll never go hungry again. He's just a, a food machine. We're just going to keep him with us. We're going to make him king. Now, remember, these people were journeying to go to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was what? That's celebrating how Moses brought them out of Egypt. Moses brought them out of Egypt. Moses fed them in the, while they were in the wilderness. They never went hungry. They always had enough to food. This, this must be the Messiah. Well, well, let's just grab hold of him and bring him down, you know, and just make him king, and he can overthrow the Roman, you know, oppression that's down there. We're going to do this. And so they're getting all riled up about this. They recognized his deity, but they drew the wrong conclusion. This is not Jesus' time to come as a warrior, as a king. So what, is, what happens? Jesus withdraws again to the mountains by himself. He gets out of there. But before he does, uh, before he takes off, we see in Mark 6, 45, parallel passage, Right after he fed them, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately, he's getting his disciples out of there. He didn't want them to be caught up in all this fanfare of, you know, crusading and getting, you know, we're going to get them king and we're going to march into, down into Jerusalem and here we go. So he quickly gets rid of the disciples and sends them before him and then he disappears Matthew 14, 22, it also talks about how he commands the disciples to get out of there. They saw, the people, the crowd saw his divinity, but they did not receive what he was saying about himself. They could not see that. They were coming to him, but they were not believing in him truly who he was. He's from God, but the reason he came, the message he had, who, what he was representing, his mission here, his work that he was doing, they weren't getting that yet. They needed to hear the word, and they needed to receive it. So, moving on to the fifth sign, then. That was the fourth sign. They get out of there. 
um, he removes himself from that group because they didn't receive him the right way. They wanted to receive him as a king. That wasn't why he was there. So he pulls himself away from that. There's a lot to be learned in something like that. If we use Jesus as a vending machine or for our own means or have a misunderstanding of what he's doing in our lives, if he's not Lord and Savior to us, he pulls away a little bit. Never abandons us, but he kind of just hangs out and waits until we come around and understand really what's going on. So this next part is letting us see the difference there is between the crowd of followers, the disciples that were following him, and the true disciples. Not all disciples are true believers, but all believers are disciples devoted followers. Not everyone in their church is a true believer, but a lot of people follow Christianity and, sp and speak Christianese and do what you need to do. So Jesus is making a distinction here between these two groups of people, and he's going to demonstrate his deity to the disciples, not just by break feeding all these people, but how he overcomes how he has the power over the laws of nature. In 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and he got into the boat. Okay, he sends them off. He commands them to get off. They get in the boat and they take off. And they start across the sea to Capernaum, going over just a little, just over the little tip there. Okay, they just needed to go jot right from that little, you know, bolt to that little boat. Um, is that okay? I'm using that as a map up there. <laughs> visual. It's a good visual, huh, Joyce? Okay. So they, they just want to go there. Now, the Sea of Galilee um, apparently lies, you, all you who have been there probably witnessed this, that it lies 700 feet below sea level in the Jordan Rift. Surrounding hills rise abruptly to 2,000 feet above sea level. So you have a, you know, almost a 3,000 foot drop between the top to the Sea of Galilee, okay? Um, and so this, when the wind comes up and blows up there, comes off of that and drops down from the hills to the surface of the lake, it creates ideal conditions for a violent storm. And apparently, Sea of Galilee is notorious for these violent storms. And so it doesn't take much to get it going because of the shape of the land there. So you have this colder air rushing down the slopes and strikes the surface of the lake with great force, and it churns up the water into white caps and creates dangerous conditions for these small boats, okay? So here, this is, this is happening. Now, remember, Jesus sent them in the boat. Jesus sent them into this storm. He knew that was going to happen. Okay, the disciples caught, they were caught in a sudden storm, and they were rowing and rowing and rowing for hours. They were rowing. They were exhausted, exhausted. Why did he send them in the storm? Were they mumbling? I, we don't know. Could they have trusted? Is he going to take care of us? What, you know, what's going on? You know, where'd this storm? Here we are. And it was, they were exhausted. One of the, um, the other gospels say that it was hours that they were out there, and it blew this little boat down more into the center of the lake. They were way off course with this. So where was Jesus? Where was he? He wasn't in the boat with them. 
we see in verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Sheer terror. Was it a ghost? He was not moving the way he should have. Now, here's a... <laughs> my horses, or... Well, we don't do horses. We'll do sheep because they're a little bit more stupid. Sheep, when they see my little granddaughter, Ezra, who's two... And she shows up one day on the farm with this glittery sun hitting off of it, sparkly. They never saw anything like that before. They're like frozen. What is it? It's moving, not like a real person. It's too small to be a real person. It doesn't look like a real person. It's got color. It's got sparkly. It's like, what's going on here? So when the disciples saw Jesus figure on this rough and tough sea and the wind howling and blowing and, and mist blowing up on this boat and everything and they see and it's dark and they they see this figure move across. I'm sure it looked like a ghost. His garment was blowing in the wind and you know, and they couldn't see really I'm sure they thought it was a ghost. They had no natural explanation for what they witnessed. They had sheer terror until he spoke. Isn't that so true when we're anxious for something and if we crack open that Bible and we start to read it, doesn't it just calm us down again? Get to your word. Get to the word of God. Focus on him. He spoke to them. Oh, my goodness. They were so relieved. Um, Jesus suspended the law of gravity. He gave them a visual proof that he is creator and control Troller over nature. Mark 4.44 says this, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Because the water's calm. He gets back in the boat. Now, John doesn't record this, but there's actually four miracles going on here. Four miracles. One, Jesus is walking on the water. Got that one. Two, so did Peter. This is a story where Peter says, Lord, let me come out to you. You've got Peter walking. Three, the wind immediately stops. And four, the boat miraculously gets to where it needs to go. Boom, they're there. This was like, whoa. Unbelievable. Four different miracles here. Well, did they pass this test? Did the disciples pass this test? Yes, because their response was worship. It says in verse um, 20, he says, do not be afraid. It's I. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was on the other land. They were glad. Well, that word glad, we're going to look at the other gospels to see what's really happening there. Um, Matthew 14, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God, glad to take him into the boat, worshipping him. And listen to this, they took him in, they received him. He withdraws from people who don't believe him, those who believe in him, they take him in. I want you to get this, because when we start talking about food, I want you to understand what he's really meaning there. 
They, they believed in him. They took him in. He's the son of God. They let him into the boat, and they worshiped him. So contrast that situation with the disciples, those 12, with the crowd that he just fed. In verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, they went looking for him. They went looking for their boats. They counted the boats. What's going on here? Probably what happened, they watched the disciples get into that one boat, didn't see Jesus there, waiting for him to come down. Next morning, there's a lot more boats there because, you know, Look at there's, you know, 20,000 people up there. Hey, let's get a little profit. So they had all these, uh, you know, business guys coming up there with their boats to bring the people down to the Passover, okay? They're not, they're not dumb. So they're, you know, the people are loading up in the boats now and coming down to Capernaum. They went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, and they find him. They find him in Capernaum. If you go down to verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So the next day, they're looking for Jesus. They can't find him. They haul on down to, to, over to Capernaum, cross over, and they find Jesus in the synagogue. So these next section that we're reading about, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Um, They find him. What does he say to them in verse 25? He rebukes them. They're seeking him, but they're seeking him for the wrong reason. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, now he's just a rabbi at this point, when did you come here? And Jesus, he's not going to answer him. He's not going to give him anything else to make him think, oh, whoa, and believe in a wonderful, he's so magical. He ignores that, and he goes right to the heart of the matter, what they really need. And he uses that truly, truly. He says to them, okay, listen up, you guys. Listen up, okay? I've got something I want to tell you. Um, because at this point, they're probably looking for him because dinner's worn off and they're hungry for breakfast. You think? Where's breakfast? What are we going to get? When are we going to eat? We're hungry again. There's not the right motives. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You just want more food from me. Physical need. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, for the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, which just means that God the Father has given him authority. He has set his seal. He says, he's the original. He's the one. He's the one that's capable of doing this. He is the one sent from me. And they said to him, what, what do we do? Be doing that for the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So he's not even going to address the fact that they're hungry and they're looking for breakfast from him. And they fail to see what he's talking about, that he sent from God, and he's doing the work of God. And to see him that truly he is, he's the son of God, he can do far more than anything else, and he was sent to them for a deeper spiritual need. Well, what do we hear from verse 29? 
Jesus says to them, this is the work. And so they said to him, then what sign do you want us to do? He's completely, they want another sign. They're not listening to what he's saying. They're hearing the words, but they're not receiving the words. They're not contemplating. They're not grabbling. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit to help you, you're not going to get it. Okay? Unless God draws someone, unless God opens up the scriptures for us, the the truth that there is, people aren't going to get it. This is his point for them, but for us here today. People we may know that aren't believers, aren't going to understand this book. It's going to be foolishness to them. They need God's, they need the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to interpret this stuff. They're not getting it. They weren't able to receive it. They heard it, but they weren't able to receive it. So now he gets into this Six different, he gets into this bread of life discourse. And I know this question came up in your group. And I want you to know that I got this one wrong on the number of things. I counted outside the parameters. (laughs) I'll fess up. There were four apparently to your thing. But total in the whole passage, there's six times. Six times he makes a reference to himself as the bread of life. So this is very, very, very important. This is a truly, 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 truly thing that he's going to say to them then, okay? He's in the synagogue. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you you give so that we may see and that we may believe? See, they don't believe. They're they're hearing it, but they don't believe. And what do you perform? And our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, because they remember all that. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you that bread. My father gives you the true bread. He provided that bread and he gives true bread, real bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They were not getting it. They wanted more evidence. He was telling them, listen, he's teaching them. Understand, he's correcting them. It's not Moses, it's God that gave you bread. Manna, not true bread from manna, gives physical life. I'm giving spiritual life. Get it, get it, get it. They weren't getting it. Were they true disciples? No, they weren't. The true disciples would understand and get it. They were very confused at this point. And verse 34 says, they said to him, well, sir, give us this bread then, always. Ah, give us this bread then, always. Like the manna, like the again and again and again and again. Keep giving it to us, keep giving it to us. They were still stuck in a selfish, unrepentant misunderstanding of who they really were and what their true need was. Their true need was not physical hunger. Their true need was a spiritual hunger that Jesus came to fulfill. And again, they went from addressing him as rabbi to addressing him as sir. They were really drifting away from it. They did not recognize him. And Jesus says, this is the first I am with a metaphor. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Come and believe is our part of salvation, okay? He puts it out there. To come and to believe is man's part. Charles Spurgeon says this, you and your sins must separate 
or you and your God will never come together. You and your sins must separate, or you and your God will never come together. To repent, to just recognize that how lost we are in the spiritual realm, and how selfish we are to just be looking at these physical needs that we have, and to realize the bigger picture, and to repent from that, then that's when God, then we can see and believe and receive him and take him in. Um, So to repent is to turn from sin. To believe is to turn to the Savior. They go together. All who are saved is a loved gift from God. Now, this is a very deep, a lot of stuff going in there. So... As you read through that, because I'm not going to pull it apart a lot here, as you read through it, you have to see it as those whom the Father calls, those whom the Father opens up the spiritual truth to, is a gift, is a love gift to Christ, his Son, like a bride, giving it to the groom. That's what the church is. We're a gift. We're a love gift from God, calling the bride to the groom. So human history that we're living here out today is a gathering of this redeemed body. So from God's viewpoint, we are given by his sovereign power to the Son. From our viewpoint, we come to Christ That's our eternal security. And he will hang on to all the ones the Father calls to him. And that's what we're seeing in verses 34 to 40. Um, He's the true food. He's the one that you come, you believe him. You can't have life apart from me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He's telling them that he's here to give spiritual life too. Well, they start complaining because they're not getting it. They're not understanding that because they're not ones that were truly called. Romans 8 29 to 30 says this. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew is before anything was made, he also predestined. He had a plan laid out. He knew. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the Father. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are glorified right now. Eternal life begins right now for us. Well, this, this stuff was very, very confusing to them. Um, they started complaining. They didn't understand what was going on. Um, their unbelief kept them from really understanding, and, and, and their hearts, as they grappled with this and complained about it, got even more, more hardened because they were rejecting the truth. But he knew that. He wasn't there to receive glory from people. He says in 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you not, do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive them. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from others and do not seek the glory that comes from God? They weren't in need of a Savior. And he goes on to criticize them. You believed in Moses, and Moses speaks, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. I was wondering where I was lost. I apologize, girls. There I am. Can we back this up a minute? You know where I got confused with the word confusion? Let's take it up, verse 60. And many of his disciples heard it and they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knew of their grumbling and said to him, Do not take offense at this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. They can't work for what they did. They wanted to know where they could go to work for this. And he's saying, no, you can't work for this. Not understanding what's going on. They criticize him because he did not come from heaven. They couldn't believe that. They knew him as Joseph's son. They, he came from Nazareth, and that was a despicable town. They, weren't, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. So Jesus is claiming to be the living bread from heaven, and you need to receive this bread. So let me just wrap it up with this. Receiving Jesus, believing in his words, and taking him in, and understanding it, understanding a need for a Savior, a spiritual hunger that we have, we receive him. He's not talking about real food. He's not talking about cannibalism here. It's a physical illustration of a spiritual truth. So don't think about what some religions think when you take communion, that it also actually becomes the bread of the body of Christ. It's, not, it's symbolic. Jesus is using the symbolism of food and of drink to communicate the deep need that we have of him to take him in and understand him. So there are, what do we need from bread? Food... There's about five things here. Food is useless unless we eat it. If I'm hungry and that bowl right there is filled with wonderful food and I don't eat it, it's not going to do me any good. So the first thing is with food, with the bread of life, we've got to, we've got to take it in. Spiritual truth does no good unless we accept it and take it in. Hebrews 4.2 says, Knowing the truth without acting on it profits nothing. To know that there's food there and I don't do anything about it, it's not going to help me. Food is useless unless it's eaten. The second thing is eating is prompted by hunger. If I'm not hungry, if I just had a nine-course meal and there's a bowl of food there, I'm not going to go eat it, am I? So those who are full aren't interested in food. If there's no need of, of, of emptiness within us, if we don't see that we're spiritually deprived, we're not going to be, we're not going to entertain Jesus as the bread of life. It's God who awakens us to the lost condition and the hunger for forgiveness. It's God who brings to our mind and our hearts a a desire to have peace and a love for Christ. The third thing is food we eat becomes part of us. If I were to eat that food, it goes into my stomach, into my digestive system, and it goes into all parts of my body to to heal cells, to do different things. It becomes a part of me. 
This is what Jesus is saying, that you, when we believe in him, we become one with him. We become unified with him, one with Christ. Fourth, eating involves trust. If that bowl of fruit like there doesn't smell very good, or if it's spoiled, I'm not going to take it in. I'm going to have to trust that what I'm eating is good for me. And the fifth thing is, eating is very personal. If I'm hungry and I need to eat that, having somebody else come up and eat this bowl of food isn't going to help me at all, is it? So this is what Jesus was saying when he's saying, I am the bread of life. You've got to eat me. You've got to drink in my, his, the blood of him because that's the sacrifice of what he did. They have to receive that and understand that his death was the, for the, the way of forgiveness of sins. Well, they had a hard time with the bread thing, but when he did the drinking of the blood, that was like over the top because they knew in the Old Testament that they were commanded not to drink blood, not to eat anything with the blood still in it. Um, so they started to have this dispute about what's going on. In verse 52, chapter 6, he uses the word, they use the word flesh, and it's a different word, Flesh versus body. So it's not referring to communion. When we do communion, it's a different word. This is the word they were, how can we eat his flesh? They're not. It's not a cannibalism thing. So Jesus doesn't back down. He knows that this is hard for them to swallow, um, but he's not going to make it any simpler. He's just putting out the truth that's there. They were a stumbling block for them. The concept of a crucified Messiah was a major concept for them. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The verbs that Jesus uses in this chapter 6 are translated eat and drink. And it's not an ongoing eating and drinking it's a one-time understanding and receiving who he is, a once and for all, a, an, a, an introduction, a, a, the, the first part of your got rid of your hard heart and got the heart of flesh and we became a new believer in Christ. That's what it is. It's not an ongoing thing that they wanted, a continuing eating and everything. It's not that. So once one-time thing and then we are new creatures in Christ. And he gives them the promise of eternal life and resurrection because we're one in Christ. We have received him. We have taken him in. Like the disciples took him into their boat, we're taking him into our bodies and accepting that and understanding that we get it. Well, some people hear the word and never take it in. They come to Jesus, but they don't truly ever receive him as their Lord and Savior. Verse 60 says that many of them fell away. Verse 66. Did you guys notice that it's chapter 666? Did you notice that was a sign of the beast? Did anybody catch that? That 666 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Satan came and snatched the seed away. 
snatch the truth away. Who can listen to this? They weren't saying that it was incomprehensible. What they were saying when they said, who can listen to this, is who can accept this? This is unacceptable. They had a lack of faith, not a lack of information. So sadly, they abandoned him, and they went off to be with the scoffers. So there's one final test here, and then we'll close, that Jesus has for his disciples in chapter... In chapter 6, verse 67, he says, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away with them as well? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. They heard, and they received. They believed. They came, and they believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. True disciples. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He was speaking of Judas. That word choose there is not calling for salvation. That is a word that is used to be selected. The twelve, including Judas, were selected to become disciples, to follow Jesus. That did not mean they were called by God to be true disciples. Um, They received him. So hearing the word, hearing the word and receiving the word. Two things I want to pull out of this. People follow when there's not a lot expected of them. Once God calls them to do a little bit more, or once church or once the body of Christ asks them to do a little bit more, they usually fall away. So looking in our own hearts, are we ones that respond, sometimes self-sacrifice, a self-abandonment to follow Christ? Do we get out of our comfort zone to do things for the church, or do we just only do it when it's comfortable for us? If you have a history of just cruising through life, and yeah, maybe you'll do it if it feels good or not, you might fall under that category of people who, well maybe surface. Just examine your heart and see if it's truly a self-abandonment where you have received Christ, he is Lord of your life, and you're serving him in the ways that he is calling you to serve. So first check and see if we ourselves are true believers. And second, share the gospel. Jesus was even sharing it with the scoffers. We don't know We need to continue to share the scoffers. I apologize, ladies, for getting a little off track today. I don't know why that happened. I think I'll get myself a new bookmark here, but did it make sense anyways? Okay. God, thank you for, for being our God, for being gracious and merciful that you cover mistakes and you, um, your word still goes out. Your spirit still takes things and feeds us and help us to grow in the ways that you want us to, and may it all come around to glorifying you. In the name of Christ, amen.